particular, we want to take some time to remember that part of what it means for us to be Mercy Commons, to be here, is that we want to be a community who's open, inviting, and welcoming other people into our church. Living things grow. And so we want to remember that we're in this season of imagining what the future looks like for us and what it looks like for God to grow our community, both us sort of internally, but also by, um, by inviting new people, people that don't have communities into a good life-giving community. So what I wanted to do this morning is I actually want to just offer a psalm. Um, and the psalms, I'm offering it for a couple different reasons. One, it, it demonstrates that being an invitational community has always been part of what it means to be God's people. It's always been an inviting in community. So this just in one way shows it. It doesn't end the conversation, but it, but it begins it. But it also, I think, gives us some language, maybe some ways to pray ourselves about what it means to be a community that's inviting, welcoming, and growing. And um, just little inside baseball, that, not really baseball, just an idiom, um, this sermon's one of the rare ones where like the text is like, oh my gosh, this is what we're talking about. So this is gonna come back at the end of the sermon. So just, right, put that little, okay. So this is Psalm 66, and I'm gonna read five through seven and uh, 16 through 19. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds among mortals. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There we rejoiced in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let the rebellious not exalt themselves. So come and see what God has done. And then they remember what God had done bringing the people out of oppressed lives in Egypt to the land God promised them. Now when this was written, this is probably not that generation. This is generations later, but they're looking back and they're remembering what God has done to help them imagine what God could do again. And then continuing in verse uh, 16, come and hear all you who fear God and I will tell you what he has done for me. I cried aloud to him and he was extolled with my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened, but truly God has listened. He has given heed to the words of my prayer. So God, let that be uh, what you're doing in and on, among us and through us. Would you continue to help us become a community that is welcoming and inviting others in to experience the life and the good things you are doing. We love you. Amen. Amen. Sarah Patton, I'll invite you up to read scripture for us this morning. Scripture this morning is the first chapter of John, verses 29 to 42. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the chosen one. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. This is the word of the Lord. So God, just as we prayed this morning for the kids as they were leaving, would you give us ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are willing willing to follow, follow you, leave old things behind. We love you. Amen. Amen. All right. We have spent a lot of time this year talking about John the Baptist, haven't we? Any thoughts on why? Any thoughts about John? You can, you guys know this. Can actually talk. Okay, John is an enigma at best, right? He jumps in the womb, 
in Luke when Mary and Elizabeth, his mother, bump into each other, uh, recognizing Jesus and their cousins. And yet we have here John saying, I, don't, I didn't recognize you. I don't know who you are, which could mean, it could mean a lot of things. Okay, so John's an enigma. What else? He's a little wild. How's he wild? John's the guy who's going to bring an open bag of chips to a community dinner. He's not going to bring a closed bag. <laughs> I was thinking you were going to say you can bring an open bag too. It's fine. That's what happens to them eventually, right? They get open. Where's he living? He's living in the desert. He's living in the wild, the wilderness. What's he eat? Locusts. He, he does spice it up a little bit by with what? A little honey. You know, honey fixes everything. Okay, so, so John's an enigma, and he's, a, he's strange, or he's wild. He's living out in the middle of nowhere. He is, by the way, uh, a child of a priest. He's living in the wilderness, not a priest. Right. So he's not where he's supposed to be. What else? Dan, you brought this up a couple times. I can just say it, but... You thought he was, we, we've talked about how he's harsh. Do you want to hang out with John? I don't. I mean, I do, because it'd be fun for a while. Maybe I'd want to grab a cup of locust with him, but I would not want to live with John. He sounds like a difficult person to live with. Uh, I remember... The first place I lived after I graduated high school, I, well, after college, I took a, anyways, it's complicated. But this first place I was living sort of on my own without somebody whose job it was to guard me, uh, it was a disgusting home. It was so gross. So gross. Um, I think that my landlord has passed away, so I can say this. I mean, you don't know him, but it was... You'd clean it and it would still be dirty. And so one day, I, um, it had linoleum floor and I was sick of it, right? I was like, I'm gonna, right, me, the candidate for cleaning and organizing. I'm like, I'm gonna whip this place into shape. And so I, 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 I cleaned like a four by four section of the linoleum floor that, that had the dirt baked into it. And I cleaned it and I was like, this is awesome. I'm gonna do it to the whole thing. But you gotta pull out the big guns, all right? So I'm, 20. And so I'm like, well, I know what you need to clean. Bleach. And what's the other one? Ammonia. You see where this is going? And it's like, listen, let's double duty it. So I get a bucket. Nice. Some ammonia. And I'm just going to town. And I just start feeling funny. And the landlord walks in, and he sees the, right? And he loses his mind. And I am shocked, stunned, scared, afraid, because he's losing his mind. I'm like, dude, calm down. I'm just cleaning, okay? And he takes the bucket, and he, like, runs it outside, and he, like, pulls me in. And all, I mean, he freaks out. He's so, I think, he's so mean to me. But what was he doing? He was saving my life. Sometimes 
you come off harsh when you're working on saving a life. Now, I don't, by the way, he didn't fix me because I tried to use hydrochloric acid on my sink. You all possibly remember that story, and that didn't go well. <laughs> so I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still needing to be saved. Sometimes harsh is loving. Sometimes being saved, being healed, these words mean the same thing in the Greek. Sometimes it is painful and difficult. I love this um, poem, or this section from T.S. Eliot in his poem, Four Quartets. He says, the wounded surgeon plies the steel that questions the distempered part. Beneath the bleeding hands we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art. I would offer to us part of why we've been listening to John so often, part of why we keep coming back to him is although he is harsh, he's inviting us into healing. He's inviting us into looking at things we're not likely to look at on our own because it's uncomfortable and if we're anything, it's comfort seekers. John's inviting us to talk about healing. And he says it in uh, one, uh, John 1, 23, right? He's being asked who he is, and he says, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So maybe we could understand John is setting us straight or resetting the broken bone inviting us into what might be moments of difficulty and healing. So one of the ways that John invites us into healing, so we're going to take a few minutes here and we're going to talk about healing. What does it mean to be people who are going after this and, and then the why behind it? What, it? what happens when we become healed people? Or as we become people who are being healed, because let's be honest, I may not be mixing ammonia and bleach anymore, but I'm still trying to solve my problems with chemicals I dare not touch. Okay, we're constantly moving towards that. So the first way John invites us into healing is he calls the people to what? He's out in the wilderness calling people to, to repent. It's a good word, right? Like that word, it's a good church word. Repent and sin, well, we're talking about both of them right now. He's out in the wilderness calling people into repentance, into healing lives, into living healthy. I mean, we all repent January 1st. And our repentance lasts how long? Hours? Anybody? Days? Weeks? Right? We, it, it, repentance isn't this mean, terrible thing. It's what we do all of the time when we turn away from something that's not good, but tastes really good, maybe, to something that is good that might mean a little bit of denial. In Hebrew, the word repent, to shuv, just literally means to re-aim. It's an archery term. So when you repent, all you're doing is going, oh, I didn't hit the bullseye. Which is funny because the Hebrew word for sin or one of them is hate and it's also an archery term that means to miss the mark. So when we sin, when we miss the mark, we're called to repent, which is to just re-aim. They're not these big bad words that some of us have had, you know, just pounded into us. Some of us don't have any baggage with the word awesome. Some of us do. But what these words are really all about is turning away from bad things 
or misaimed lives. That's what John's doing. John's saying, re-aim. And what John wants to heal, what John wants to invite us to re-aim, there's two things. The first is, and this is probably the most important or the most foundational, is he wants us to re-aim how we see God. Now, if you, uh, and I would invite you to keep it open um, the rest of the time here, because we're going to spend some time peeking at it. Back to John 1. And starting at 29, right? If, if one of the things John is doing is healing how we see God, healing wrong pictures of God, inviting us to repent of seeing God poorly. I mean, even think about that for a minute. The, the first thing we're being invited to turn and repent from isn't the bad things you do, but from maybe a misformed way of seeing What does John first say to us, at least in this text, about who God is, who Jesus is? Starting right in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and declared what? Here is the the Lamb of God. All right, now we'll stop there for just a second. Lamb of God is a reference to what? All right, a particular sacrifice, which one? Our, did you say blood? Yes, okay, so blood sacrifice, where, when? Okay, Egypt and Passover. And what would they do with the blood of the lamb at Passover? They'd put it over their doorway, and why would they put it over their doorway? So... And I quote, so the angel guy didn't or won't kill them. Yes. They, they put it over their doorways so they wouldn't die. So death wouldn't come into their homes. See, sometimes we get it confused. And we think... God's going to get us. And there's definitely a part of Jesus inviting us to follow him in his, into his death. Absolutely. Okay, but we're, we're, we're staying right here. Where first John describes Jesus as that which protects us from death. Behold, the Lamb of God. That which goes over the doorway, whose blood somehow keeps us safe. Whose death brings us life. And let's continue. The Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. All right, so the lamb lays down his life for us. And when it comes to talking about sin, Jesus is not rubbing your face in it. He 
You ever seen anybody train their dog that way? That is tough. And while it might be effective, I always wonder what sort of relationship that's cultivating between the dog and their, their master, their owner. Just because something keeps you from pooping in the house doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. And I want to take a peek for a minute here, a little bit at, at Matthew 11, at what and how Jesus talks about who he is with regard to this sin, which is a burden to us. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and carrying a heavy burden, and I will give you rest. He's talking here about the burden of sin, of brokenness, of misaimed life. Again, remember, sin isn't just you being naughty and getting your hands slapped and don't do that. We're talking about lives that aim at the wrong thing. And what does Jesus say the center of all of Scripture is? You know it. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the center. You want to know what a sinful life is fundamentally, according to how Jesus teaches scripture to us? It's a life that is not aimed at loving God and loving your neighbor. Remember the guy who comes to Jesus and says, you know, it's the, I've kept all, it's the rich young ruler. He says, I've kept all these laws. I have not broken a single one of them. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus tell the rich person to do? Give away all your money. And what does he say? Nah, bro. The whole thing comes down to love. Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That, the yoke Jesus is talking about is, in, is, is the yoke of knowing that life boils down to loving God and loving others. That's the yoke. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the one who lays down his life so we don't die, who takes away the sin of the world, replacing it with something else. When it comes to our misaimed lives, our broken lives, Jesus' response to us isn't get it right or else. He's not rubbing our face in it. He's saying, repent, just turn away. turn. And then if we move our way down to verse uh, 32, and now I'm back in John 1. So 32 and 33, right, okay. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it what? Remained on him. By the way, anytime you read, read the word remained here in this chunk, it's the same word Jesus will use in John 15 when he says, abide in me and I will abide in you. Rabbi, show us where you are staying. It's abiding. This whole thing is talking about like under the surface in the language of being with Jesus. Okay, so uh, the, the spirit comes down and remains on him and then uh, and remained on him, thir verse 33. I myself didn't know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the spirit is with him. 
Who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who is with God. Okay, now we're into like Trinity conversations, which I'm not gonna get into because I don't have a, I can't explain that. But what we see here is that he's the lamb who saves us. When it comes to dealing with our misformed or misaimed lives, he invites us to just to turn or to trade, to pick new things, good things, God's things. And Jesus is fundamentally in relationship in, pres- in the presence with God. He's not coming in and out of it. Jesus is not Pharaoh. We are not peons or serfs to build massive oppressive empires. We are God's children. So we have this, and there's way more than this. In fact, it's funny, if you just flip, if you've got your Bible open, right, we're like 29 through 40-something of John chapter one. And what's, how does John one begin? In the beginning was the word. We have Jesus being described as God's word, as being the one who was with God, the one whom all things were created through. This isn't the only description we have here. There's tons more. We just don't have time to get into it all. All right, so the first thing John's inviting us to repent of is our wrong pictures of God or misformed pictures of God or pictures of God that are not true. So he's healing that. The second thing he's inviting us to heal is what our identity is as we repent of thinking that we're the center of the universe. Uh, In verse 20, 30, and 34, we have John saying the following things. In 20, he says, I'm not the Messiah. He says, that's not who I am. I'm something else. In verse 30, he says, after me comes one who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. John's older than Jesus, and John's saying, Jesus was before I was. And then in 34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. John is not placing himself in the middle of the story. And one of the ways we get it wrong is we think life revolves around me. Anybody else want to say amen to that? That they struggle thinking the world revolves around? John's inviting us to leave that behind. which is not easy to do. It's easier to do when we know who God is. So he's healing our picture of God. He's healing our identity, thinking maybe that we're center of the universe. He's also healing our identity as we think we're not beloved. Now, we talked about this last week, right? One of the things that's baked into what's happening at Jesus' baptism is a restoring to all of us that which has always been true of us, that you and I are beloved children of God. Can you earn it? Audrey, can you earn it? Oh, sorry. Listen, I didn't mean to pick on Audrey, but Wednesday night at youth group, we talked about baptism And I asked this question, and Audrey said, I was listening. You said, I can't earn it, and I can't lose it. So I was just giving you a moment to shine, Audrey. Sorry. You can can punch me later. You can't earn it. You can't lose it. You can only what? Forget. You can only forget who you are. And by the way, that can wreak a whole bunch of havoc on your life. 
All right, he's healing our picture of God. He's healing this idea that we might think we're the middle of it all. He's healing that we might forget that we're God's beloved children. And he's also healing our vocation or our occupation or what occupies our lives. So let's go back to Genesis 1. You can turn there if you want or you don't have to. It's fine. Um, but in Genesis 1, 26, God says, come let us create humans or man what? In our image and likeness. And then in uh, verse 29, 28, God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And then this really great word here, he says, have dominion over it, all right? And, and it it's literally means rule. Part of what God creates humans to do is rule. And you should hear that in your best 1980s, right? You're created to rule. Now, that sounds problematic, right? Except how does God rule? Humbly. Service. If we go and we look a little further in, um, Genesis 2.15, it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to till and keep it, or it literally means to serve it and to guard it. Ruling means serving and protecting. As a human being who's made in God's image, your primary vocation, occupation, that which is the center of what you've been called to do is to serve and guard. We are preoccupied with ruling we just maybe get it twisted a little bit. We're image bearers who are called to have dominion and to rule, but to do so not like the world does it, not like Pharaoh does it, not like a Caesar does it, but like Christ does it. By serving and protecting. That's our identity. So these are the things that John's healing. Now, what happens after John heals? Well, John kind of, his story doesn't end here, but it does take a twist, doesn't it? Because when we get, we get to verse 29, all right, one, I'm back in John, John 1, 29. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and he declared, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we move down to verse 35 and it says, then the next day, so these are happening in succession. John is a broken record. He says the exact same thing. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 37, what happens? The two disciples of John who heard him uh, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So now we see John doing something with sort of within all of this. Uh, Matthew has at the very end of, of Matthew's gospel, it has the, what we call the Great Commission. And what's the Great Commission tell us to do?
Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples by doing what? Teaching them. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations by teaching them what I've taught you and by baptizing them. And there's a way to read it where you go, okay, so after 28 chapters of following Jesus, 25 chapters of following Jesus, the disciples are finally ready. All right, now we're thinking a little bit about growth, being an invitational community, okay? They're finally ready to invite other people into this. After three years of Bible school, except John flips it up on its head. What does John have happening at the very beginning of the story? People saying, you gotta come see this. John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why are they still here? Why why have they not left me and started following Jesus? So the next day, Jesus walks by again and he does the same thing. And this time, they get it. They follow. The come and see is constantly a part of the story. And it doesn't begin here with the story of Jesus. It begins all the way back at the beginning. It's happening in Exodus. It's happening all throughout. It's part of what's happening, whether we like it or not, in the exile stories. The children of Israel are getting sent into other nations. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, go into, you know, he, he's getting ready to send, and he says, when power comes on you, you need to go into all the world, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And by Acts 8.1, I only remember this because the numbers switch. By Acts 8.1, they're still all in Jerusalem. They haven't listened. And so what happens? A persecution comes upon the church, and what do they do then? That's when they finally go. This come and see has always been a part of what it means to follow Jesus. It doesn't happen at the end. It doesn't happen after three years of Bible school. It doesn't happen after being a Christian for whatever. You could say that Andrew and the ones who are following Jesus aren't even Christians at this moment. But they're saying, I've seen something. We've experienced something that, that everybody needs. So in John, in John 35, 37, we have John saying, go to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Andrew and an unnamed disciple goes. And then in verse 40, we have the same thing sort of happen, right? Uh, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated as the anointed. And he brought Simon to Jesus. So we have John the Baptist sending two of his disciples, Andrew and somebody else. And then we have Andrew, one of the ones who was sent, going to his brother. You see it like trickling? This is like how it begins. This is how it happens. This is why we're here. No joke. We're here because somebody said to somebody who said to somebody, because somebody invited somebody who invited somebody all the way down to us. And then it happens again. And this is skipping a little bit past where we read, but verse 43, 143. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found the one, right? It just keeps happening. And this is what's happening. When Jesus meets the woman at the well, what does she go and do afterwards? 
Come and see the one who told me everything about myself. Did she have a good story or, well, did she have what we would consider a good story or a bad story? Bad. Is she excited that Jesus has told her all of these, that Jesus knows all these things? Yes, Jesus knows her story and invites her to follow, to participate. Healed, not shamed. How does this work out today for us? It works out in us. I, I haven't yet been unable to invite somebody to follow Jesus in the body. Anybody been able to do that yet? It'd be cool if you did. I'd give you the mic. In us, but not just as individuals, that's part of it, but in the body of Christ. So a couple weeks ago, we had some um, folks that I know who visited us for the first time, and afterwards I was talking to them, and I was like, so tell me what it was like for you, thinking they were gonna, you know, I wasn't sure what they were gonna say. And I got the, I got the greatest report. They said, what, this is one of the warmest churches we've ever been to. Somebody greeted us at the parking lot. We got to meet folks in here, smiles, shared lives. That's part of how we invite folks into the life of Christ, by being a warm, welcoming community with our smiles, with our eyes, with our listening to each other. Um, Something happened a couple weeks ago that reminded me of a story, uh, something that happened to me somewhere else. And um, I was at this, I was at, it was, we had a, um, we had a a woman's shelter come to our church. Uh, This was, I was at a church in Woodbury and invite the church to partner with the, the shelter. And, um, the, the representative from the shelter got up and sort of shared, you know, what was going on. But behind the scenes, they had told me, she was like, I just didn't want to come today. She's like, I almost slept in. She's like, I just didn't feel like getting up. Didn't really want to go to church. Really didn't want to come and do this. Life had been whatever for her. And we had three services. At the end of the third service, there was a woman there who needed a place to go. And it just reminded me of what happens when we don't show up for each other. When we don't show up, we don't see each other. We don't get to participate in each other's lives. We reveal Christ in our world by, you know, by being down in the nursery, by teaching our kids. We, we do it by um, showing up and, sh- and, and making coffee. I mean, this might seem very pedestrian, but they are small ways to practice. We do it through loving the stranger among us, right? We've spent the last almost year working with the family of Afghani refugees. And we, we don't do it to do social work. Are we a social work agency? No. Why do we do it? We don't do it so we can go, look at us, we're awesome. We're doing it because at the very underneath all of it, we want to reveal Christ in our world. And that doesn't mean we're doing it so these people show up and go to church. That's not the goal. Would that be a bad thing if they joined our community? Absolutely not. Awesome. But we're loving them to reveal Christ and letting the Spirit do the rest of the work. We're bearing God's good news in our actual lives. We're being... Come and see people. I'm going to read Psalm 66 here again, just as we end and before we come to the table. 
and invite us to consider what it means for us to be come and see, come and listen people, both for ourselves and for the sake of the world around us. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds among humans. He's turned the sea into dry land and they passed through the river on foot. There we rejoiced in God who rules in might forever and keeps watch on the nations. Come and hear all of you who fear and hold God in wonder and I will tell you what he has done for me. I cried aloud to him. I exalted him with my tongue. And if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, then the Lord wouldn't have listened. But God has listened. He's given heed to the words of my prayer. So God, this morning, we lift up our hearts to you. We ask you to heal us. Show us spaces to repent, to turn. And would you invite us into your life, further into what it means to live with you and in you. We love you. Amen.